I'm pretty excited to preach now. It's quite, kind of my favorite thing to do on Sundays is to preach um, because I love to bring the truth to you and I love to bring what things that have changed my life. I love to share those with you to see how they will change your life. And so if you would, I would encourage you to follow along by maybe opening your Bibles to John chapter 12. Um, that's where we're going to be. That's the text that won't be on the screen. John 12, starting at verse 12. And uh, we'll be. Uh, you can use a Bible app event for this if you want to. That is one handy little gadget, that Bible app. And uh, that's a great way to follow along as well. It'll be a while before we get to John 12. I want to begin by telling you a little bit of a story. Some of you will remember this. It was June of 2018. So what is that? That's almost three years ago now, right? Just shy of three years ago. That a dozen boys from a soccer team, the name of the team, the Wild Boars. A dozen boys from a soccer team entered a cave in their native Thailand with an assistant coach of that team. The boys were 11 to 16 years of age. Counting the coach, there were 13 in all. They had gone into this cave, parking their bicycles outside, and they had actually entered into a very narrow cavern and crawled back approximately two miles. And then, without them knowing, because they're way underground, it began to rain. And when it began to rain, it was what they call a monsoon. And as the rain came down and the water came up, they were unable to return to exit the cave. If you followed that on the news, you know the outcome. 18 days later, they were rescued, all of them alive. Two of the rescuers lost their lives in the process. If you remember that, I want to just share with you some observations as I was doing some research on this that I made this week. And the first one is this, it's obvious. If no one had come down into the cave, those boys would have perished. They couldn't wait it out. That's what I thought initially. Well, wait till it quits raining, the water will go down, then you can just crawl out the way you came in. No, it was the rainy season. That cave would be full of water for months. Expecting them to wait it out would be like me being caught outside in the winter in maybe late November in a snowstorm without a jacket And somebody saying, hey, wait it out. The snow will quit pretty soon. Months later is when it was going to quit. And in that time, if they didn't die of starvation, which obviously they would have, they would almost certainly have died of oxygen deprivation even before dying of starvation. Because oxygen levels when they were rescued had reached a critical point inside the cave. It was full of carbon monoxide. A less obvious fact is that not just anybody could rescue these boys. I mean, it's clear that I couldn't rescue them. I don't have that set of skills. It required swimming through very, very cold, rushing water with diving equipment in the pitch black darkness. You think to yourself, well, they could have taken lights, right? And they could indeed take lights. They did take lights. But have you seen flood water? It's muddy. And visibility was near zero in that cave. And the rescuers almost immediately realized that veteran cave explorers were unable to cope with the condition, the kilometers of water they would have had to go through. Cavers had no experience with diving equipment, no skills in moving through that kind of moving current of water. And veteran divers, let's get to Navy SEALs. Well, Thailand has Navy SEALs. And so they went in to reach them. (laughs) 
And they had excellent diving skills, but not in caves. Who practices diving in caves? And they realized, we can't do this. You know, even Elon Musk, the SpaceX and Tesla guy, even he couldn't help. He offered, hey, we have a miniature submarine. We'll send that over. Too big. Hey, I have a boring company. Not boring as in dull, but boring as in we dig holes in the ground. Too dangerous. That wouldn't work either. Not just anyone could go down and rescue those children. Here's my third observation. The people who saved those children seem to have been just the right people. It's amazing. They estimate 10,000 people were involved in the whole project from all over the globe. And the ones who saved those people were just the right people. You could think of it this way. The man with the commercial pumps (laughs) that could move the water out of the ground. Who was that? Well, the Thai government has pumps. I mean, they have pumps that they can do move water with. They do that. I mean, Thailand, have you seen how much water surrounds that country? And they know what they're doing with that. But the governmental pumps weren't even putting a dent in what was in that that cavern. There was a guy at the Indian embassy in Thailand. And he, he got to thinking back in India, we have this company called the Karlaskar Brothers. They've been around since the 1800s. And they make the biggest dewatering pumps, who knew there was such a thing, that I've ever seen. And so he called the Thai government and he said, you need to contact these guys. And the guys in India loaded those things up as fast as they could, got them over to Thailand, ran them up the side of that mountain and got them all running. The water coming out of there would amaze you. It would just amaze you to see that. And when we're watching the videos, maybe you watched it. When you're watching the videos, there's guys that are managing those pumps. They're running around with oil cans, just keeping them running. 24 hours a day, seven days a week. In fact, NPR reports that after the boys, the last boy came out of the cavern, the pumps finally failed. Like just within hours of the last child being rescued. Those were just the right pumps, recommended by just the right people, delivered and maintained by just the right individuals, and they lasted for just the right amount of time. It took the divers, a special diver, to be comfortable going into that cave. Because even though a lot of the water's out, most of the water's still there. And it's still deadly. Remember, two men died. The research led me to believe that there's only two men on the planet that could have done this. Two guys who could have navigated that water, laying the rope so that they had the guide rope to go in and out. First finding the children as they lay the rope, then carrying the oxygen in with them and carrying food in with them and eventually carrying a doctor in with them who anesthetized, I can't say that word. Somebody say that word for me. He gave the children anesthesia so they were unconscious. I can't put that into a verb. But this doctor, by the way, he was a guy from Australia who happened to be an expert scuba diver. And what kind of doctor was he? He was not a heart specialist. He was not a lung specialist. He was an anesthesiologist. He was just the right guy. And those two men that took him in there, their names were John Volanthan and Rick Stanton from the United Kingdom. They were just the right people to go down and rescue those kids. Here's a fourth observation. 
The heroes that saved those people, and I'm not talking just about John and Rick. I'm talking about the guy oiling the pump, you know? I'm talking about the guy in the embassy who happened to think, we have better pumps than that, let's call. All of those people, those heroes, they did it because they valued human life. Two divers lost their life in the effort. Twelve children and their coach were saved. There was a farmer who had a farm down below, down the hill, at the bottom of the mountain. And gallons of water were being propelled through very large tubes, portable hoses going across the ground and down off of the side of that mountain, down into his, into his rice paddies. Rice paddies like water, but not that much water. Hmm. He was interviewed. She was interviewed. Pardon me. She was interviewed. Listen to what she said. If the water reaches the children, they will be dead. If the water floods my rice fields, I can just plant rice again. Now don't write that off. That was her means of support. She was not wealthy. That was her livelihood. But she valued that human life. John Velathan was awarded, and Rick was as well, an award in the United Kingdom called the George Medal of Gallantry. It is the highest award you can get short of being in battle. They were awarded that award. And listen to what John said. The most important thing was returning the wild boars to their families. Valanthin went down into the cave because he valued human life. You know, if you're one of those boys, how do you respond to that? Do you ever wonder about that? The whole world came together and rescued us. People dying trying to save us. How do you respond to that? You know, maybe Private Ryan showed us a glimpse of that in the movie that bears his name, where at the close of the movie, he's standing at the graves of those who had given their life for him. And he says to his wife, tell me I've led a good life. Tell me that I'm a good man. One of the older children, during a press conference, after they had come out of the hospital, and they're all gathered there with cameras from all points of the globe focused on them and microphones in front of them. One of the older children said this, I appreciate everyone's generosity. I will be mindful and live a worthwhile life after this ordeal. Not bad, huh? I, I, I don't know. I think it'd be really hard to know how to respond to that if you were one of those children. I do know this, that those who went down into that cave to save those children and brought them back up, in a sense, they were a lot like Jesus. We're going to read about his coming down on Palm Sunday. So your Bible's open to John chapter 12. I'm going to start at verse 12, just read maybe five verses. The next day, a great crowd that had come to the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. He took palm branches and went out, sorry, they took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna! And by the way, Hosanna means save now. It doesn't, it's not a word of worship. It's not like hail or we love you. It is save us now. Shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. As it is written, do not be afraid, daughter of Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first, his disciples did not understand all this. 
Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that those things had, and, and that these things had been done to him. Now, the crowd that was with him, when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead, continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he had performed this sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, see, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. That's John's account of the Palm Sunday ride, Jesus' descent down from the Mount of Olives. I want to talk to you about what Jesus is actually doing here. What is Palm Sunday all about? Why do we celebrate this day? And in short, he's coming down. He is descending. He's like those divers coming down to rescue the soccer team. On Palm Sunday, we see Jesus coming down. If you think about it, he's come down from heaven. How does that very, very old Christmas carol go? Out of the ivory palaces into a world of woe. Yeah, he's coming down. And Jesus said that he came down from heaven. He said it in passages like John 6, 38, where he says, I have come down from heaven, not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. He came down from heaven to earth. And as we read our passage today, he's coming down from the Mount of Olives. That's what he's doing in this text. The picture that's on the screen right now is a picture that I took when I was standing on the Mount of Olives. I have been blessed to be able to go twice to Israel. This is from my first trip to Israel. I don't know if you can see it there. If you take a look at that, um, and if you imagine that picture is the state of Pennsylvania, long about up there toward, uh, what would that be? Um, Cook Forest, maybe? A little, little northwest of there? There's a little gold dot. Can you see it there? That is the Dome of the Rock. It is a Muslim shrine. A rock is there that the Muslims consider a holy place. It is also Temple Mount. It was the heartbeat of Jerusalem. It was where the temple stood. And Jesus is standing on the Mount of Olives. He is with his friends there in Bethany. He's with Mary, Martha, Lazarus. That is where they live. And he's going to go down through that valley. It's called the Kidron Valley. And over to that area where the temple is. He's going to ride a donkey. People will be waving palms in the air and laying down their cloaks. He's coming down to Jerusalem. Now, a number of people might think that was a pretty foolish thing to do. In fact, we know that his disciples kind of felt that way about the whole ordeal. We read John chapter 12. Back in chapter 11, John is giving the account of Lazarus's death And Jesus has decided to go there, and we know he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead, but his disciples didn't understand that. And what Thomas says really gives us a picture of the situation. When Thomas knows that Jesus is going anywhere near Jerusalem, even going to to Bethany, uh, the scripture says that Thomas, known as Didymus, said to the rest of his disciples, let's also go, that we may die with him. I'm not sure if he's Eeyore on Winnie the Pooh or if he just realizes how dire the situation is that their lives may be forfeit at any time. And I can imagine the thinking like, Jesus, what are you thinking? The religious leadership in Jerusalem hates you and they have power and this is a big holiday. Why would you go to Bethany just across the way from Jerusalem? But despite the danger, Jesus went to Bethany on the Mount of Olives. And later on Palm Sunday, 
Jesus went down to Jerusalem. Down the pathway from the safety of the Mount of Olives into the city where he was sure to face death. In fact, before the week's out, Jesus will go down to the grave. By Friday, he will be on the cross where he will perish. He willingly went to the cross to carry our sin and shame. He willingly died in our place. And by the end of the week, he will go down into the tomb. He's perfectly aware of this. As he mounts that donkey and heads down the mountain path, he knows he's going down to his grave. He goes there with purpose. He goes there to lift us up. One of my favorite psalms is Psalm 40. I often use it when I perform a funeral service because I love what it says about Jesus lifting us up. I first stumbled upon this psalm years ago in the 80s when I bought a vinyl record with U2 on it. And there was a song on it called 40. We're playing it and I said to my wife, this sounds kind of religious. We didn't know anything about U2. She said, look up Psalm 40. And there were the words. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock, making my footsteps secure. You see, he came down because we were in need. He came down because we were at risk of suffocating from the sin that surrounded us and came from us. He came down because we were going to drown in the evil and darkness of this world. He came down because we needed rescued. Do you see why I say the people who rescued the wild boars, that soccer team? (laughs) They kind of remind me of Jesus. Jesus came down to rescue us, to save us. And because he came down, he is our savior. In the Alliance, we talk about Jesus as our savior, sanctifier, healer, coming king. If you've been with us the past three weeks or four, we covered those bottom three there, but the savior is what we're talking about today. He is Christ, our Savior. This week, I started reading a book that I don't agree with at all. The reason I do that is because it helps me sort things out in my head and my heart when I hear opposing viewpoints. And so I'm reading this book that I don't agree with at all. And and, and the author is suggesting that Jesus did not die to save us. That on the cross, he died for some other reason. Now, that thinking is not new. It's not unique. Much of Eastern Orthodoxy does does indeed say that the reason died was to defeat Satan and darkness and not to substitute his life for ours. This author, a well-respected scholar, would like to get rid of in the Western church and in, in the church in general, the idea that Jesus was satisfying justice when he died on the cross. He indicates that The very thought that Jesus would have to die in our place is a pagan thought. It's not. He's wrong. That's exactly what Jesus was doing. Dying in our place. I know why this author wants to do this, or I know why most authors would want to do this. He feels it's impossible for people to reconcile the thought of God being perfectly loving and God being wrathful all at the same time. 
You can't put those together, he would say. Yes, you can. Yes, you can. You see, I would say to you that sometimes the most loving thing you can do is to display and enact wrath. If you know a person who is abusing a vulnerable innocent, the most loving thing you can do is report that to the proper authorities. And as you do that, you are opening the way for wrath. And when justice is brought to bear, the guilty will say they are feeling wrath and the, the victim, the vulnerable innocent, will feel like they're feeling relief, even love. And unless the perpetrator actually repents and finds grace in God, he or she will still face the wrath of God. And we nod our heads and say, amen and amen. I tell you that to remind you that God's wrath has a place. He hates sin because it destroys what is good. And we all have sinned, all of us. But he loves us and therefore offers salvation from his very own wrath. That is why Jesus came down. He came down from heaven to provide that. He came down to Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives to give us that. He went down to the grave. And when he went to the grave, he took something with him. He took my guilt, your guilt, your shame, my shame to the grave, and he left it there. Christ our Savior came to absorb the punishment that we deserved. We read it just a couple weeks ago. It was last week, actually. When we talked about Christ, our healer, we looked in Isaiah chapter 53, verse five and read, but he was pierced for our transgressions. Why was he pierced? For our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him and by his wounds, we are healed, pierced for us, crushed for us, given punishment that brings us peace, him doing it for us, him bearing it for us, him for us over and over again. The Bible speaks about Jesus taking God's wrath in passages like Romans 5, 9, where it says, since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more will we be saved from God's wrath through him? We are clearly saved from God's wrath by Jesus because he absorbed the punishment that was due to us. 1 John 2, 2 says, He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, not only our sins, but also for the sins of the whole world. The theological word for that, and maybe your translation says propitiation. And propitiation, it means he took the hit that I deserved. He took the heat that you deserved. He did it for you. Now, people who object to this teaching like to suggest that In our culture, this looks a little like child abuse. A father letting his son suffer for the sins of others may have been okay in the past, but it is not okay today. It is downright abusive and offensive to our enlightened minds, to our generation. Can you smell a little bit of snobbery in that? Look, it would look like child abuse, except Jesus is not a child. Jesus is a warrior. (laughs) Jesus goes to the cross, not as some victim, but as one who is prepared to crush the serpent's head. And as he prays in the garden, 
he is expressing the same kind of heart that the bravest soldier, the mightiest warrior, the most willing battler would express to a loving, kind father. That's what he's doing. And when he says, not my will, but your will be done, Jesus is not expressing defeat as though he felt like the father won the argument. Rather, he is expressing cooperation and agreement, willingness that has been in his heart and mind since before the foundation of the world. We miss that. We miss that because of something that C.S. Lewis called chronological snobbery. You know what snobbery is. Chronological means relating to time. Here's how it goes. It's sort of the thinking that, that the way people thought in the past, that art, that science of an earlier time is inherently inferior to that of the present. That simply by virtue of its temporal priority or belief that since civilization has advanced in certain areas, people of earlier periods were just less intelligent than we. And we all do it. (laughs) I do it. I mean, when I was reading Lewis, I'm like, son of a gun, I do that. I do that. He uses the example of how we say something is medieval. Oh, that kind of thinking is just medieval. Like medieval people were stupid and I'm smart. Chronological snobbery. Chronological snobbery may lead you to believe that the father is taking out some kind of personal selfish frustration on Jesus. And in previous generations, they were okay with that, but I'm not okay with the father relieving his anger on his son. That is not what is happening at the cross. It's not selfish frustration that's being meted out there. God is the judge. God is the judge of all the earth. And what is happening at the cross is that the judge of all the earth is setting things aright in the cosmos. And we need him to do that. We need him to do that. We can't bear to lose sight of that. And we don't want to cancel justice. Just because our generation finds the idea of the son of God dying for the sins of humankind a little bit troubling It doesn't mean it's wrong. And frankly, to rewrite that perspective on the atonement is heretical. And I almost never use that word. Christ our Savior died to absorb the punishment that should be ours. And Christ our Savior, he came down to pay our debt. And there are many Bible verses that speak about him doing that. I'm just going to show you one. It's from Romans again. It's chapter 5. Verse one, where the scripture says, therefore, since we've been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. He justified us. He gave us peace. He paid our debt. You know, have you ever been to a mortgage burning? Who here has witnessed a mortgage burning? Put your hands up. Yeah, a number of you have. We've done them here at Kermansville Alliance. Uh, One of them I was part of. Um, I can remember when I was a young pastor in my first church, someone said, let's have a mortgage burning. I thought it was some kind of pagan ceremony, right? No, here's what we did. We took a cookie sheet out of the kitchen. We took our mortgage because when we built that extension, that ministry wing, we borrowed $800,000 plus. Vern knows the exact amount. He was a treasurer. And by the grace of God and your faithful giving, we paid that off way early. So the debt is paid off. 
So we took that mortgage and we took a cookie sheet and one of us held it up here and somebody else held the cookie sheet and someone else took a match and lit it and we burned it right here in the sanctuary so there was nothing but ashes left on a cookie sheet and a very unpleasant aroma of burned paper throughout the building, right? <laughs> Let me tell you, that aroma felt like freedom. It smelled like freedom, right? Yeah. You understand? <laughs> you understand that that is what Jesus came down to do for you and me. He came down to pay our debt, to pay for the sins that we had done. He canceled the charges that were on our account. He burned the paperwork. He justified us. If you're trusting in Christ, having turned away from your sin and you're following him, you have been declared by the righteous judge, not guilty. And anytime you feel guilt and shame, the kind that condemns you, that is a lie from the pit of hell because Christ, our savior, came down. He came down to adopt you into our family. Scripture talks about Christ making us part of the family of God. And probably one of the most popular passages on that is in the gospel of John, where it says he came unto his own in verse 11, John 1, 11. He came unto his own, but his own did not receive him. And yet to all who did receive him, to them who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And adoption has its privileges. It has its privileges. Adoption gives us a sense of the love of the father. I have a pastor, Steve. I never had a father who loved me. You do now. You do now. Because you're adopted in. Adoption gives you a seat at the dinner table. Pastor Steve, our family never sat together for dinner. Dad was down one in front of the news and mom was in the kitchen and we were eating wherever we were eating. It just, you know, it just never felt like a family. I don't, I don't know what that's like. You do now. Because once a month at Kermansville Alliance, you celebrate the Lord's Supper together as a meal together, although it is just a wafer and some juice. And frequently, pandemic notwithstanding, we gather together as a church family and even in smaller groups and enjoy one another's company as at a dinner table. I want to tell you, this right here has grown in the past 12 months. I'd like to blame the pandemic. I'm going to blame the Thursday night men's group. I just can't say no to that food, right? There's really no one to blame but me. I'm not going to be that guy, right? Yeah, you enjoy the presence of a meal together with brothers and sisters in Christ, whether it's a communion meal or whatever it might be. And adoption gives you assurance of answered prayer. Matthew chapter 7, verse 11, Jesus says, if you then, though you're evil, and by the way, don't ever get the idea that his eyebrows are furrowed when he says, if you then, though you're evil, he's never disgusted by you, never. You get that? Maybe by some of the things you do, but never by you if you're his. And so I see Jesus saying this kind of like, think about it, you guys. <laughs> if you, even though you are who you are, if you then, though you're evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Christ our savior came down and he sees to our adoption. So let me go back. Let me go back to some observations that are important for us to make. Remember, we made some observations about the incident in Thailand. Let me make some observation about Jesus coming down. First, if Christ our Savior had not come down, we would have no hope. We would perish 
like a soccer team buried alive. But Christ came down. (laughs) He came down so we have hope. Another observation, not just anyone could have come down and done this. Michael the archangel couldn't have done it. Good night, the angels try to figure it out and scripture says they don't have a clue. (laughs) I couldn't have done it. I could not have died for, for your sins. If I were called upon to die for your sins, I'd be way too busy dying for my own, you understand. But he who knew no sin, the Lord Jesus Christ, he was the one person, the one person qualified to do that. And on top of that, on top of that, he was uniquely qualified because Jesus is fully God and fully man. And being fully God, he could speak for God. And being fully man, he could represent us. And so he could broker a covenant. He could enact a covenant would be a better word. He could enact a covenant between God and man, a covenant of salvation by grace through faith because he is God and because he is man. Christ came down to save us. And Jesus did this because you needed it. He did not need it. He didn't need it. Sometimes someone might tell a gospel story and say, God was lonely, so he created Adam and Eve. Never been lonely a moment in eternity. God felt bad about what he'd done to us. Never regretted what he had done to us in that respect. Never. He did it because Jesus loves you. This I know. For the Bible tells you so. And just as some people around the globe, 10,000 people by the estimate, cared about human life enough to get those kids and that coach out of that cavern. God cared about you enough and loved you enough to rescue you. Have you discovered that love? Have you encountered that love? Have you understood that love before? Have you personally found his forgiveness? You know, there's, there's a danger here that when you hear what Jesus did on the cross and you discover that it's for you, you can begin to feel this sense of overwhelming guilt like, oh, crumb! Good night, now I put Jesus on the cross. You did. But he doesn't want to give you guilt about that. He wants to give you freedom about that. He wants to have paid your bill and he wants you to say, thanks, that is just what I needed. And if you want to have that freedom from guilt, if you want that release from shame, if you want to have that life that he offers, if you need to be saved from God's wrath, the, the, the response is easy on your, it's easy to understand on your part. You acknowledge your sin. I've done wrong. And I know I've done wrong. You acknowledge that Jesus died on your behalf. I believe, Jesus, that you took the punishment. I trust you that you took my punishment. And you turn away from your sin and you follow him. I will follow you, God. Forgive me because of what Jesus did. I will follow you. And when you do that, the fourfold gospel is complete in your life, but much more important than that, you're rescued from the pit. You're placed on a place where your footsteps can be secure and you're walking with the king. I want to pray that if you haven't done that, I want to pray that you can do that. If you're comfortable doing so, let's all stand together. So some of you have done this long ago. I have done this long ago. And I just want to remind you that when you do that, when you say, I trust you, Jesus, and you turn your heart to him, you begin to follow him, 
That's good. You don't have to do that over and over and over again. There are times, though, that you might feel like you want to renew that agreement, just like maybe my wife and I might want to renew our marriage vows or something like that, you know? There are times you realize, I better renew that agreement because I've really messed up here, that covenant. So you do it that same way. You say, God, I messed up again. I know that I'm still yours. I get that. But I want to walk close to you again. Draw me close and may I walk with you. But if you've never done this, if you've never really understood that Jesus died in your place and you want that forgiveness, then as I pray out loud, you pray in the quietness of your heart, asking God to save you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are so thankful for your death on our behalf. And those who are gathered here who have asked you for forgiveness years ago and placed their trust in you, we rejoice in what you did, that you came down from heaven. You came down the Mount of Olives. You went down into the grave and you brought us up. Thank you for doing that, Lord Jesus. Thank you. For those who just, they never really got that before. As they consider it, may their hearts speak to your heart with words like this. God, I, I had not realized what you have done. And I can't imagine why you would do that for me because I know I don't deserve it. But I trust what the Bible says, that Jesus loves me and that you saw me as valuable. And Jesus, that you died on my behalf. I believe that you did that. I'm gonna turn away from my sin. I trust you, my savior. I will follow you. And God, I'd like to say I'll never mess up again, but I know that would be my first mess up if I did. I will mess up. But when I fall down, grab me, God, by the arm. Pick me back up. I want to walk with you. In Christ's name, amen.